Welcome to the ParkCast series, episode 30, Understanding Self-Harm Among Adolescents. The ParkCast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This podcast outlines the complexities of adolescent self-harm, differences between harm behaviors with and without suicidal intent, risk factors for self-harm repetition, and key critical thinking considerations. Defining self-harm. The term self-harm will be used to refer to any socially unacceptable, intentional, and direct harm of oneself without suicidal intent. When self-harm is considered abnormal or socially unacceptable, it breaks both cultural and subcultural norms and can include any range of behaviors, such as cutting, scratching, burning, and hair pulling. More abstractly, self-harm could also include excessive risk-taking, disordered eating, substance abuse, and provoking violence in order to cause injury. Some authors attempt to further delineate self-harm and self-injury. However, little research that focuses on children and adolescents goes so far as to do this. As research continues to develop on this topic, ambiguity still remains due to the various terms used to refer to self-harm and the wide spectrum of motivations and contexts in which it takes place. Importantly, however, throughout the literature there is a consistent understanding that regardless of the specifics of self-harming behavior, the foundation of the concept is that an individual who is self-harming is in sufficient distress. Also known as, self-harm is known by multiple names in the literature, such as self-injury, non-suicidal self-injury, self-injurious behavior, self-mutilation, and deliberate self-harm. While some of these terms may be similarly defined, It is important to think about what your definition of self-harm is, how that is different from the particular study you are reading, and if these differences have implications for applying the research to your unique case context. Distinguishing between suicidality and self-harm. Motivation for self-harm is often complex. It may not be clear whether suicidal intent was present at the time of harm, and studies suggest that many times adolescents are ambivalent about the end results of their self-harming behavior. While it has been common in the UK and Europe to group self-harm with and without suicidal intent under one umbrella, much of the emerging literature demonstrates a shift in tone towards separating self-harming behaviors based on intent, whether actual or perceived, focusing on examining the ways in which suicidal and non-suicidal self-harm might be different. For this reason, the current literature review will differentiate, where possible, between self-harm with and without suicidal intent. The lack of clarity in the field and the literature in differentiating between self-harm with and without intent begs the question, are these behaviors fundamentally different, and does it change the need for and type of support? Theoretical arguments in earlier literature suggest that self-harm and suicide differ on a number of levels, including prevalence, frequency, lethality of methods, and attitude towards life and death. According to Jacobson and Gold, the intent of self-harm is not to terminate consciousness, as in suicide, but to modify it. Self-harm is often motivated by thoughts of temporary relief, while those who engage in suicidal behaviors long for permanent relief through death. Self-harm, then, is not exclusively about death and dying, but also about survival and communication. Its significance lies in the message the act is intended to convey whether to oneself, such as calming or soothing, or to others, for example, to signal distress. 
However, what is known about motivation and cognition for self-harm among adolescents is drawn from a small number of research studies with varying degrees of rigor. More longitudinal, large-scale attention to the issue is needed. While not generalizable to all adolescents and children, what these studies can do is suggest that there may be important differences between self-harm with and without suicidal intent. However, findings across studies have failed to produce clear conclusions on this matter. According to the literature, adolescents may not identify with a clear intent at the outset of a self-harm incident. For example, in a time of distress, a youth may seek relief or escape by cutting him or herself, without consideration of the outcome. In a clinical sample of adolescents undergoing treatment for depression, Wilkinson and colleagues found that both future self-harm and suicide attempts were predicted by previous self-harm. However, and particularly relevant in the context of child welfare, future suicide attempts were also predicted by poor family functioning. Future self-harm was predicted as well by feelings of hopelessness, anxiety disorders, younger age, and female gender. Self-harm is often a habitual, repeated behavior. Identification of risk factors for repetition is important to practitioners to ensure referral to psychological assessment. Self-harm is not only a signal of an individual's distress, but is also the strongest indicator of later suicide. The exact reasons for this are not yet clear. Methods matter. One of the key limitations of the literature on adolescent self-harm is that it has been primarily conducted with small samples from psychiatric or clinical samples, making the generalizability of findings to non-clinical or community samples of adolescents questionable. Stay tuned. Research on self-harm in adolescents continues to emerge in recent years, and as always, we recommend you revisit the literature on occasion to stay informed on new findings. Who self-harms? Risk factors and prevalence. There are no consistent data on its prevalence. However, there is general agreement that the rate of self-harm in adolescents, approximately age 14 to 17, is between 7 and 14 percent. A systematic review of 128 studies, which included over 500,000 adolescents in total, found that 13% reported engaging in self-harm at some point in their life. Studies indicate that approximately 10% of adolescents will have self-harmed by the time they finish secondary school, and 10% will repeat self-harm in a year. Repetition of self-harm was found common, 27%, in a large clinical sample. While self-harm is one of the strongest predictors of suicide in adolescents, no study has yet to show that self-harm is independently linked with a higher risk of completed suicide in adolescents. This means that other risk factors, such as mental health issues, may play a larger role in the development of self-harm to suicide. Like many social phenomena, the exact prevalence of self-harm among children and adolescents is unknown. There are two key reasons for this. Lack of consensus around what constitutes self-harm. Use of various assessment methods to determine self-harm. For example, the youth must present to a hospital. They must have achieved a specified number of repeat incidents or certain methods that were excluded from definition of self-harm behavior. For more information on assessment and intervention methods, see Part 2 of this literature review. Likely as a result of these two limitations, there is little research on the frequency and nature of self-harm among adolescents, and limited research examining self-harm variations by gender in community samples. 
There is also a lack of research examining the motivations underlying self-harm and the function that it serves. Further, the rate of engagement in self-harm among children and adolescents is less clear due to the absence of assessments of non-suicidal self-harm in most large epidemiological studies. Initial research findings suggest that engagement in self-harm is on the rise among adolescents. However, we must remember to consider research findings through a critical lens. The lack of baseline empirical data means we cannot state for certain whether or not this is true, as we do not have previous rates to compare with. Methods matter. Paying closer attention to a phenomenon and gathering strong data on its prevalence beginning this year can skew our perception of the true change in prevalence over time. Without these strong measures in years past, we do not have anything to compare the present rates to. Perhaps the most striking theme to emerge from existing literature is that there is no one profile for an individual who self-harms. Difficulty identifying a profile may be partly due to the widely varied motivations reported for initiating and repeating self-harm incidents. Within clinical populations, those who self-harm tend to report high levels of depression and anxiety and comparatively fewer coping mechanisms. However, those who self-harm in community populations can be found in any neighborhood and are often talented and creative youth who may be masking their pain or distress. These cases are not immediately visible and are most likely to go undetected. Gender. In adult community samples, females have been found to be up to three times more likely to report having self-harmed than males. However, these findings have not been confirmed in adolescent community samples. There are no significant and consistent differences between male and female adolescents' rates of self-harm in the literature. Some studies suggest there may be higher rates of distress, for example anxiety or depression, among female adolescents who self-harm than among males. Others suggest different functions for self-harm to include greater social function for male adolescents. In a survey of 424 adolescents in a Canadian high school, a non-clinical population, it was found that overall self-harmers were more likely to be emotionally distressed, to have decreased self-esteem, to engage in more antisocial behavior, to report problems controlling their anger, as well as increased discomfort with angry feelings. These results were consistent across genders, with the exception of emotional distress. Girls who engaged in self-harm exhibited increased levels of distress when compared to boys. More research is needed to determine potential gender differences in risk, prevalence, and function of self-harm for adolescents. History of child maltreatment. Maltreatment in childhood can later manifest in depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, delinquency, and substance abuse. While there is yet no direct link between childhood abuse and self-harm, there are many who support the idea that traumatic events in childhood can lead to self-harm in later life. Some studies have found significant, small, and medium associations between certain forms of child maltreatment, that is, physical neglect, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse, and a recent history of self-harm among adolescents. The pathway through which child maltreatment or other traumatic experiences may lead to self-harm engagement is not yet known. However, the literature has shown potential for affect and state dysregulation, as well as self-criticism, to be moderators between childhood maltreatment and self-harm. Considering the theory that self-harm may result as an accumulation of early life stress, research is building to suggest that additional factors, such as parenting stress, low socioeconomic status, and family stressful life events may play a role in adolescent self-harm. Of particular importance is the adolescent's perception of family functioning. 
whether or not this reflects the reality in the home appears to be less important than the relationship between the family function and adolescence distress, than the relationship between the perceived family function and adolescence distress. Mental health issues and distress. As one might gather, incidence of self-harm is higher in adolescents with mental health issues. Though not all individuals who engage in self-harm meet criteria for a mental health disorder, the behavior is predictive of a psychiatric diagnosis. Self-harm is a diagnostic criterion for borderline personality disorder and is also suggestive of bipolar disorder. Self-harm under the term non-suicidal self-injury is included under conditions for further study in the DSM-5. Adolescents with anxiety, depression, and eating disorder or substance abuse are at increased risk for self-harm. Clinical samples show that adolescents who present with self-harm are more likely to have particular personality traits, including harm avoidance, negative emotionality, deficits in emotionality, deficits in emotional skills, low self-esteem, neuroticism, and low openness to experience. Community samples also identify high rates of depressive symptoms associated with self-harm among adolescents. In both samples, however, there is little clarity about the patterns of association between self-harm and depressive symptoms. Much of the research examining this link has been conducted using cross-sectional designs, which look at what is happening in one point in time. While cross-sectional studies can highlight potential roles that depression might play in the course of self-injury, they cannot recognize patterns of influence over time. Self-harm in the child welfare context. Only one study known to the author reports on self-harm using a child welfare-specific sample. Grenville, Goodman, and McPherson describe the characteristics of self-harm in a sample of children living in out-of-home care who had previously self-reported, threatened, or completed self-harm without suicidal intent. The authors utilize a definition for self-harm that does not include suicidal intent behaviors, recognizing that self-harm has not been a well-studied area in child welfare for a number of reasons. Importantly, self-harm is not a consistently captured data point of the child welfare record system, and it is not well understood in child welfare as in much of the broader literature. For children living in out-of-home care in Ontario, serious occurrence reports are required as formal documentation completed by the youth's worker and collects both quantitative and qualitative data. Quantitative data could include their name, age, previous self-harm incidences, and time of the incident while qualitative data includes more of a description of the self-harm incident, recommendations, and the outcome. An analysis of these reports identified that female youth in care had the majority of repeated self-harm incidents. Self-harm among youth in care was more prevalent among 14 to 21-year-olds than their younger counterparts. However, the fact that very young children living in out-of-home care, those under 13, have reported self-harming behavior is a critical note. A second key contribution of this study is in capturing when incidents tend to occur, most of which were between 6 p.m. and midnight on a weeknight. This presents a key piece of information for intervention. Further, youth who were crown wards were less likely to self-harm than youth who were not crown wards. Non-crown ward youth were most often under temporary care and likely experiencing emotional instability, placement instability, stress, and possibly depressive symptoms. This supports the above discussion of the accumulation of early distress as a potential mediator in self-harm engagement. Functions of and motives for self-harm. In both clinical and community samples, 
Adolescents who self-harm often have multiple reasons for engaging in this behavior, the most commonly reported being to feel anything at all, even pain. Other motives include to try and get a reaction from someone, even if it is negative, to stop bad feelings, to get control of the situation, to give themselves something to do when they are alone, to get attention, to relieve feeling numb or empty. These reasons can be categorized into two main themes. Social or interpersonal. These motives aim to change the external environment, for example, by garnering support from friends or caregivers. Emotional or intrapersonal. These aim to change an individual's internal state, feelings, and emotions. Coping with negative emotions. The most frequently stated reason for engaging in non-suicidal self-injury is to cope with negative emotions. Multiple studies have suggested that self-harm functions to reduce the intensity of negative emotions by providing a distraction, giving a physical pain to inner turmoil. Further, various therapeutic texts describe self-harm as serving a self-soothing function, and in doing so, create a space to associate self-harm with other, perhaps more socially acceptable, coping mechanisms. This attempt at positive labeling may help to counter the negative effects of various labels. For example, diagnoses that will be discussed in Part 2 of this literature review. Affect Regulation Throughout the literature, the repetitive and seemingly reinforcing mechanism of self-harm is discussed. Some youth use self-harm for emotional relief, to regulate depressive symptoms or negative emotions. Following the harming event, high arousal negative affect states, such as feeling overwhelmed, decrease, and low arousal positive affect states increase. This reduction in negative affect may function to reinforce the use of self-harm as a way of coping with depressive symptoms and negative emotions. Some studies suggest that this might be a powerful reinforcing mechanism, as the change in affect can be almost immediate. Further research is needed to look at the emotional states most associated with self-injury. For example, do adolescents feel less lonely after self-injury, less empty, more exhilarated, Each of these emotional outcomes is consistent with prior research indicating that affect improves following self-injury, but each would have different theoretical and clinical implications and is an important area in which to gain insight. The research tells us that at least two dimensions underlie the emotional impact of the self-harm experience. The first is called valence, and this refers to the pleasantness of emotion. The second is arousal, or the intensity of the emotion. However, what remains unknown for adolescents, and is key information for intervention and treatment, is which of these is the most dominant in motivating the onset and repetition of self-harm. The research doesn't yet give us this depth of information. Social functions. Popular in recent media is discussion of the social motivations for self-harm, with claims of the use of self-harming behavior in response to peer pressure or to promote feelings of belonging with groups of other adolescents who engage in these same behaviors. There is some discussion of this hypothesis in the research literature. However, there is a greater emphasis on the social functions of self-harm in terms of signaling distress to caregivers. In adults, however, several lines of research suggest that in many cases self-harm does not serve a social function. For instance, most episodes of self-harm are performed in private, and many self-injurers never seek treatment. Importantly, just because an episode of self-harm influences the behavior of others does not mean that such a consequence influenced the person's decision to engage in self-harm in the first place. 
In a large self-report community survey of adolescents in high school, authors found that when females experienced the suicide or self-harm of a friend, it increased the likelihood of their own future self-harm. This is a twist on the social function, suggesting that self-harm is not a social activity, but the thought to engage in the behavior might be received in a social setting. Control. In adulthood, self-harm has been identified as one way of dealing with memories of abuse or trauma. Self-harm can be a means of repeating, communicating, or symbolizing a traumatic experience. In this way, we see a clear distinction between self-harm with and without suicidal intent. Self-harm functions here as a form of communication, a way of telling without telling the story of the original abuse. Importantly, reenactment may be a way of feeling a sense of control that was not present during the original abuse or traumatic experience. While this study has considered the experience of adult self-harm, the concepts are quite interesting and worth considering in the context of children and adolescents involved in the child welfare system. Conclusions. What did we learn and what is missing? While there is an expanding literature base on self-harm among adolescents, what this literature review has highlighted is that there are still a number of unknowns. This is a complex phenomenon and youth in distress who engage in self-harm will have different and likely multiple reasons for doing so. In addition, the emotional impact, or affect, following a self-harm incident may vary. With research continuing to be published on this topic, we look forward to learning further about potential gender differences in self-harm behavior, details surrounding the emotional impact of self-harm and what emotions it is both born of and results in, as well as ways in which the self-harm experiences are different for children and adolescents in the child welfare population. You have been listening to the ParkCast series, episode 30, Understanding Self-Harm Among Adolescents. At parkcanada.org, you can read part two of the literature review on this topic, Supporting Adolescents Who Self-Harm, Assessment, Intervention, and Treatment. The ParkCast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about and additional resources on this episode's topic, the ParkCast series, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org.